Hello and welcome back to Dear Adam Silver, a show dedicated to creating and discussing alternative perspectives on sports and art. I am your host, Abigail Smithson, and my returning guests today are professors of sociology, Stefan Suh, Alex Manning, and Kyle Green, who are back on the show to discuss recent sports news that has been on their mind. And at the very end, we get into some of our thoughts about the upcoming NBA season. Thanks so much to the profs for joining me on Christmas Eve, and thanks so much to you all for listening and supporting this podcast for the past year. It really does mean the world. Well, I'm so glad that we're able to get together on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's been a while. Um, Kyle and Alex, I saw you all during the right after the Wildcat strike before we knew how that was going to resolve itself or not. I mean, depending on how we're using the word resolve, uh, whether it's resolved or not. And Stefan, we haven't had a podcast since pre-2020 season. Congrats, uh, reigning champion, LA Lakers fan. <laughs> Great work. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've done so much for that team. <laughs> but yeah, uh, thank you. And um, yes, the, the Lakers are the reigning champs, are, as are the LA Dodgers. It's been a great year for LA sports, even though it hasn't been a great year in general. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great to be back on. Yeah. And Kyle and Alex, welcome back too. Good to be back. <laughs> yeah, always fun. So I thought we would start today just by sharing some recent maybe events or news that kind of caught our eye uh, individually and just sharing with the group and we can sort of unpack that and see see what comes up and how it goes. I'm not, I don't know if I want to use a timer for each of us because it just seems like the conversations could kind of evolve and go in different directions depending. So we'll just, um, we'll just go for it. So Kyle, since you were the first to put your info in the Google doc, do you want to start us off with some, some stuff that's been on your mind lately sports wise? Yeah. So the thing I've been thinking about is we have given a lot of attention to how the different major sports leagues have returned. And there's been a spectrum to how careful they've been and how successful they've been. And now with the NBA returning, there's a lot of contrast between what they did in the bubble and what they're actually doing now that they actually they have to have a full season um, and thinking about what's safe, what isn't safe, when people get suspended, what what the issues are if you break quarantine. But the groups that are not talked about enough, I think, are all the other types of sports leagues. And I know um, Alex might talk a little bit about college sport, although not as not as COVID focused. But I've been really curious in what happens to local teams. So in Rochester, New York, where I'm based, there is there are a few professional sports teams. Um, the one I wanted to introduce you all to are the it's the Rochester Razor Sharks, which is the local basketball team. And the Rochester Razor Sharks, I'm just going to go to their Wikipedia really quickly. So they were founded in 2005. They're a member of the American Basketball Association. Uh, they later joined the Premier Basketball League. So these are professional basketball leagues that are somewhat regional. So they go out, they go through the Northeast. In that time, the Razor Sharks won eight championships, which was pretty incredible. So they won the 2006 ABA championship in the PBL, the Professional Basketball League. They won the 2008, 2009, 2011, 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2017 championship. Um, They joined the North American Premier Basketball League for a bit and then went back to the Premier Basketball League. And they sat out a season during that time. So they are incredibly successful. They're arguably 
I think actually without a doubt, the most successful team in New York. And like, obviously they don't get a ton of media coverage. Um, it's exciting to be a fan of a team that actually wins. Uh, so, it's, so it's great for me. Um, but the thing that I've been thinking a lot with these leagues as I watched, as I watched them try to restart is these groups don't have the funds that something like the NBA has, right? And they don't have the ability to sit out or put, uh, have a temporary uh, suspension of a league for COVID protocol because they don't have the resources. And even thinking about how they return with the NBA, even if they don't have fans in attendance, right? That's a, that's a large loss of revenue. But the NBA still has these TV deals. Um, I looked it up right before we started talking. In 2014, the NBA signed a nine-year deal for $24 billion with TNT and ABC. So they can still rely on that. If they have a season, that money, that in that income, that revenue still comes in. And then they have the local deals also. So I know the Los Angeles Lakers, one of the reasons they have so much money is they have an incredible local television deal. They earn a ridiculous amounts of money just through that. So for groups like the Professional Basketball League, they don't have that option. So I've been watching as they have tryouts, as they have practices, right? As they prepare for the season, they keep pushing back when they're actually going to start and they haven't released, released actual dates. I think there's eight teams in this league right now. Um, and they actually have some really cool names and logos if you ever want to look it up. Um, and I say Rochester Razor Sharks is at the at the top of it. <laughs> because I don't, I don't know what how they came up with Razor Shark, but it's kind of amazing. Um, and they, but they also do a lot of stuff for the community. So they have like a mini Razor Sharks leagues where they offer basketball camps at North Rochester uh, during all the protests. And Rochester was a site of a lot of protests recently after the killing of uh, Daniel Prude, which I mean, so it got a lot of national attention. The Razor Sharks are putting out comments during this time, not just being like, oh, let's have unity, let's have peace. They were specifically putting messages out about how to be anti-racist, right? They weren't walking this kind of happy line. So they're, they're a really incredible group. But then the question is, what do they do now? Um, and they're playing basketball. They're getting ready for the season. They're having practices. This is not a good time to be doing that. I know the players don't have the ability to do the type of quarantines that you expect in the NBA. They don't have access to making sure every player is tested because that costs money. So they have to rely on going to the same community place that I go to. Right. Um, so I, I think I don't have too much of a profound statement about this, but more attention needs to be given to sports at local levels and those kind of medium and lower level teams. We always talk about, well, can the NBA do it safely? Well, the NBA has resources. They can make sure that players are tested. If an NBA player does get COVID, this is not a good thing, but they have the access to the best healthcare possible. If you're a razor shark player, uh, that's, that's not an option, right? If the one player gets test positive on the Razor Sharks, probably spread throughout the whole team. Um, they just simply don't have the ability to do the type of stuff the, the, the dominant professional leagues do. So that, that was the story that I wanted to bring up. Absolutely. And I think there's such a parallel also to be drawn between just how um, sort of bigger, more powerful, uh, richer businesses right now, like across the spectrum, if, you know, the NBA is the the Amazon of basketball um, can, you know, sort of sur survive this, this or thrive in the case of Amazon uh, during this time, whereas smaller local businesses uh, in sports and outside of sports are the, are, are, uh, don't have the, the resources to, to get through this on, on their own without, without people, <laughs> uh, individuals like showing up and, and, and spending their money. I think another really important component that I guess hasn't been discussed yet is, I mean, yes, resources are important, but so are then like player unions too. So I think 
if we see how resources work in conjunction with the with player unions or lack thereof, we can see things like the NCAA, these kind of minor league or smaller leagues that have fewer fundings and I'm presuming don't have players unions. Like uh, we see how then the players themselves become exposed to these types of risks and don't really have any capacity to to fight back against it or to create any rules or boundaries to protect themselves um, because they really don't have any, they really, they, they really don't have much power and say beyond what they do, I guess, on the court specifically. And so I guess, yeah, funds are important, resources are, resources are important too. I think it also emphasizes the importance of, of players unions within these leagues, within these sporting leagues to help protect the interests and rights of, of, the, of the players and the health, obviously. And I think it's, I think it's harder for the players to exert pressure on management or ownership in these leagues too, because the league itself is so tenuous and the players don't have that type of star power, right? Like I'm, I'm a fan of, I'm a fan of the razor sharks. I have, uh, I have a t-shirt, which makes me officially a fan. I did check and, out the, the shop on the website. So nice t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, they, definitely. So any, anyone out there wants to support the razor sharks, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't think most fans of the Razor Sharks can name all the players. Uh, and the the only player's name I know is a is he was a uh, alumni of Brockport where I'm a where I'm a professor. So, right, that's the connection that I have to knowing who that person is, but that's not so it's hard if if one of the players is like, "Hey, I'm going to sit out unless we have more of a voice." I think it's 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 such a diff, it's a lot of it's a difficult step, right? So, I I think that is important to think about how in the for those smaller businesses for the uh labor that's more disposable in a sense i'll add to um kind of thinking about like yeah like the small business parallel but just how in sports because so much attention is on the big spectacle and this parallels what's happening in major league baseball with minor league teams like there's huge tensions like teams have been folded um how does, how does, how do resources get allocated even like, you know, throughout like the professional structures, right? So we have these independent basketball structures, like the NBA is not actually invested in truly like the game being um, healthy in small cities or, right, or mid-sized cities. And as someone who's not lit, who's now lives in a smaller town, right? Like it, it actually makes sense. Like, so like in Utica, right, there's an indoor soccer team. Um, and I think there's, there's one other small. Oh, I like, think like, there's minor league baseball too. Right? These are like too. these are like community hockey, right? Yeah, these are like little community institutions, right? And I think for sure, people when we think about sports, we don't think about actually like it's spread through all these different levels. Um, and so yeah, like in terms of not even just like the TV contracts, but like are these these leagues right? We're not considering sports as like a community asset here, right? The NBA is not operating in that way, except when they think about a global globally globally right but not necessarily like at this very local level where it's not huge media markets yeah and I, the the other thing i'd say is rochester does have a surprising number of those small local and i shouldn't say small but those medium-sized teams um they've got the rock city lions um they've got the they actually have a recently there was a women's basketball professional basketball team that just started and i don't think they've they started right before covid so it's kind of been a, a difficult beginning, but they're called the Flower City Monarchs. So there's a lot of, there are teams, but yeah, like Alex is saying, these are tied directly in the community, but they also disappear very quickly. 
And have there been any um, sort of local stories about players sort of voicing any? I know you said that they it's hard harder for them to sort of advocate for themselves. They feel uh, that they you know it's not a players a players league necessarily, but just has has there been any community concern about them that you've read about maybe from a player or, or beyond that about coming back? I haven't I haven't seen anything, um, but the coverage has been almost. I mean, there hasn't there hasn't been really coverage of this. So it's been something I've been kind of paying attention to. And there's a lot of the local a lot of local businesses sponsor them. So like the pizza shop down the road sponsors them. So again, thinking about who the big sponsors are, it's not like they have the the billion dollar company that can throw money their way. It's the local pizza place that gives them free lunches or something like that and gets their logo on the jersey. So I there hasn't there hasn't been a lot of coverage of it. And I don't I don't know what the restrictions are um, in terms of practice. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure what's going on, but the, the time that I was giving it the most attention was I was surprised that there were just tryouts where anyone from the community could come and play basketball, right. And see if you can make it. So there's no, it's not like everyone had to show that they got tested and quarantined before they try out, you go and try out for a basketball team, which means you're in a space outdoors or indoors, but the tryouts ended up at the end being indoors and you're breathing and sweating and moving around. So that's kind of, it's a pretty scary thing but also a necessary thing for that league to continue. Right. Well, thanks for, for bringing that up. And I mean, I think that, you know, being really specific about the Rochester Razor Sharks, it's like there's Razor Sharks all over the country, yeah. you know, uh, as far as the equivalent. So it really speaks to things that are probably playing out in uh, everywhere. It's important to, to, to think about and pay attention to as, as sports fans. Great. Uh, Stefan, what did you have in mind for your something that was interesting to you? Uh, well, the first thing that came to mind uh, was a story that I heard on NPR the other day about how um, the IOC was adding breaking or breakdancing, as it's commonly known, um, as, um, as, a, as, a, as an official Olympic sport for the 2024 Paris Olympics, for Olympic Games. And um, I thought this was, a, this, was a really, this was a really interesting story because um, it, on the surface, it's just simply, it's, it's detailing the globalization of, of a common or popular art form slash sport, right in this case, breaking. And I mean, breaking has been globalized for decades already, but then uh, I think anytime a sport or a cultural activity becomes an official Olympic sport, it definitely dons new um, discussion, it, it dons new importance, perhaps recognition globally. And so I wanted to pose a question to you all, um, just kind of a general kind of opinion kind of type of question about whether you think breaking becoming an official Olympic sport and debuting in, well, in this case, four years in the, in the Olympic Games is, is a good thing for breaking or, or not. And um, so just generally speaking, what, what do you all think? Because this is the first time that like a, you know, countercultural or indigenous art form has become one, one globalized and then two recognized by the IOC. Um, and it always spurs discussion, right? So uh, I, I'm curious what you, what you all think. I have my own thoughts. My first reaction is I think the Olympics have been doing this right because they did the same thing with surfing 
and snowboarding, right? It was more like the extreme sports. And we know surfing actually has indigenous roots, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, so that's why, so in terms of like, what do I think it means? I think, and even with those sports like skateboarding, right? Like skateboarding is still maintained it's kind of ethos, right? Um, like, I don't think the Olympics has the, um, even with its kind of globalized consumerist, right, underpinnings, I don't think it actually can fundamentally um, challenge, right, the culture of breaking. I mean, breaking's already gone through various iterations. It's become globalized. The fact that it is now a global, right, mm-hmm. uh, a, a cultural subculture. So, I think that's, I think it's interesting, like what it will be kind of presented as on the scale at the Olympics, like what, how it will be, how it will be discussed, who are the people who actually represent, but in terms of what, what's going to happen on the ground, right, in communities, I don't think it would necessarily challenge that way. So it's got, to me, it's like what will be represented in Tokyo, right? Is it happening in this, no, in this Olympics? In Paris, in Paris, in four years. In Paris, yeah, in Paris, yeah. in Paris, what, what will happen in Paris? Like who are the groups, like if, if someone wins, like will the community recognize like are they are those people going to be like cared about or like celebrated as the best breakers? Like I don't know. Like I will change it that way. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah. I have a pretty negative reaction to it, and my negative reaction is related to a general dislike and distrust of the IOC. I think I think it's yes. a pretty gross organization, <laughs> um, and I hate this game that's played every four years where. It's like, look at the new exciting thing that we're welcoming into being officially a sport. And here's this thing that's seen as more countercultural, whether it's like Alex is bringing up, whether it's going to the extreme sports, um, pole dancing is something that was on the verge of being accepted, I think is is on its path. Um, but then you drop out other traditional sports, like wrestling got dropped out of the Olympics. One of the, really like a foundation of the Olympics, wrestling was dropped, I think in 2016, and they made their way back in, but there was a, there was a threat of it disappearing. And I just, I just hate the whole process about like, oh, now we legitimate you as, as something official. I, I think it's just kind of gross. Um, I think it's cool that we're recognizing the athleticism of people who do activities that are not just the, what we, we consider traditional sport. I think that's cool. If that's what it leads to, if it exposes a practice to new audiences, that's great. But also what does it mean to turn a performance that's so rooted in improvisation into a sport? And I'd like to see what the rules are and what the judging is, because that's, that's kind of dangerous too. Cause it, um, and then going to Alex's point, like, who are the actual performers and who are the judges? I'm curious if the people who break dance for competition are also the same people who made break dancing so awesome, or if it's this new group of people who are athletes who are going on this path and it looks like a completely different thing. And is the history still celebrated, right? Is it still coming out of the, the you know, the, the trio of hip hop culture, which is like break dancing and, and rap and graffiti is like, it's still, is it still rooted in the same thing? Or is it now just look, we have this sport, look at how impressive the person is because they scored five points by doing this particular move. Like you're not supposed to, that's not what it is. Um, so I don't know. I, th- I think it's cool when it gets attention, but it, it, I just always, I have a general distaste towards that type of thing. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't care about the Olympics anymore. Like, I don't get excited when it comes around. <laughs> like, I, I wish it were, I wish it were better, but what, I don't even know what I, I have, I have trouble trying to think about what I actually would celebrate about the Olympics other than the cool opening, opening where they usually have some interesting artistic stuff going on. 
So just to sort of parrot what Kyle said, I, I also just think, you know, I, the IOC is so reprehensible that I just, when they validate something, I'm like, stay away from that, you know, in some way. Um, but I have been thinking a lot about uh, sort of the possibilities and failures of, of sports diplomacy recently. And so the Olympics have been um, on my mind about that uh, in the past couple of weeks. And I, I mean, I do think that there's something tricky about the the breaking because with so I really like ice skating. That's one of my favorite winter uh, Olympic sports to watch. And I never really think about the music with ice skating. I'm so fo it seems so oftentimes just generic uh, to the uh, not really specific in any way. And I'm thinking about the what the ice skater is doing. And I just don't know if that that translates to breaking. I think that the the music has to to matter more in some way because of the tie between. Um, breaking and, and hip hop culture that those are, you know, kind of go hand in hand in many ways. I think that that should be something that uh, that the music should be part of the competition as well in some way or that, you know, the, the artists that are making the music should be should be getting, uh, you know, at the very least credit for it, if not uh, there as well. I'm just I'm not sure I I I, I want like physically it makes sense to me that it, it is an Olympic sport, but um, it's just not uh culturally it feels like there's some things about it that that don't make as much sense in that sort of format as far as how sports are discussed and i guess and i guess the other aspect of that and then i want, I want to hear your, your opinion stefan because you brought it up but um the other other question that goes along with it if, it, if it's about recognition and leading to uh break dancers being able to make more money and have a livable wage through this activity. Great. But we know the Olympics is not where that happens, right? We have gold medal judo, uh, competitors talking about how they were barely scraping by while they were competing for in the Olympics. So I, that the Olympics is not great in that way either. So that it's, if it, if, if it were, this were the step you turn into a sport and suddenly you can monetize this thing, that could be an interesting conversation, but I don't know if, I don't know if the Olympics is, is that the path to that even. So. Yeah, I guess that's the, that is one of the questions. It's like, how, what is the path to sort of sort of answering some of these questions about how athletes are treated or how our culture is treated when it is globalized? And um, the fact that, you know, breaking is already a global phenomenon. Um, what sort of it just I don't trust that the IOC is not looking out for for their own public perception in, in this case necessarily, which, you know, is just like the name of how that works. Yes, I'm, I'm hearing a few things from you all. So one, I think the loudest thing that's coming out is well, screw the IOC. And I, I think we all agree with that perspective. They are a very corrupt organization. Um, but then like more, I guess, if we if you think about uh, things in the abstract, what the what the Olympic Games, what the Olympics means abstractly to not only athletes, but but to consumers, then I think there can we can frame it as somewhat of a positive, especially when it comes to the notion of like cultural sharing, cultural exposure that happens in a potentially like non-exploitative, non-imperialistic, kind of organic sharing, which I think you know it is a long shot and it's up for debate. But um, when that kind of cultural sharing occurs, it's generally celebrated, right? So like that, like the idea or the mantra of the um, of the Olympics at the surface is typically celebrated, but when you get, when you, when you get down to the nitty gritty, when you get down to the, the bureaucracy, 
the rules, the administrative parts of the IOC, that's when you know the criticisms can begin to come out. Now, how this how this then comes to affect um, breaking or the sports cultural practices that become uh, you know internationally recognized uh, once or once they become recognized by the IOC, I think is in some ways a different question. Um, like on the surface, I think uh, it should be celebrated because um, it, 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 it's it's an act, of course, um, just generally speaking, of this kind of uh, sharing of a cultural practice that has over the past 20 years, 20, 30 years really, um, exploded in popularity around the globe. Like I was first, really introduced to the popularity of, of b-boying or breaking because of like relatives and friends in Korea where breaking has become huge um, as has been the case in other East Asian and Southeast Asian countries and so like on the one hand it's like that's great right so the fact that um, a cultural practice that originated in New York has has globalized and localized in ways that the originators probably couldn't even think of is, is like is actually something worth I guess uh, celebrating and um, thinking as, as as a positive good, right? But then it becomes. I think the question of representation is another important one that you all mentioned too. Um, apologies for the dogs. Um, uh, like who becomes who becomes a gatekeepers uh, for this sport, right? So uh, is it does it become is, is it, are, are the IOC or some other governing body the gatekeepers or the the practitioners at gatekeepers and what do they what do they say or how do they represent the origins and the history of the sport is really the question that's always asked not for, not only for breaking but when any kind of countercultural indigenous cultural practice becomes globalized and if, if history is um any note of if history tells us anything it's it's that generally speaking when these cultural practices become globalized um the originators original gatekeepers the people who had the most influence with the the origins of the sport and practice typically don't have as much say later on right and I, I i do worry that i mean i think uh breaking has already reached that point like there are governing bodies throughout the world there are organizations and there are nations that have in many ways co-opted breaking for their own in ways that divorces it's from its more countercultural hip-hop related roots um but I mean, the IOC officially recognizing it definitely takes it to, to that next degree, right? It's it's now not just its own an independent governing body. It's also been recognized by the largest sporting organization, arguably one of the largest in in the world, and that that means something. And um, whether or not this is this is this, this is just like a you know non-exploitative cultural sharing is is a question that that needs to be asked. Stefan, can you explain for folks who might not know the term glocalization? Because you said that. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, I, I forget sometimes not everybody studies globalization <laughs> uh, in an academic way. But yeah, so globalization, globalization refers to um, the localization of global practices or so or of cultural practices that, that, that have become glo globalized, right? So um, we can think about the ways in which um, certain acts that originate from a specific geographic space, let's say hip hop, for example, have globalized and then various regions and various actors throughout the world have then localized that globalized cultural practice in a way that's more meaningful to that local audience. And so that's localization in a nutshell. And 
but you, through the globalization of various cultural acts, we've seen so many like arguably indigenous or geographically specific cultural practices become localized over time. And there's a large debate within, within the field of globalization studies about whether or not like cultural globalization is a good thing, whether or not it does lead to things like localization where there's still some kind of um, like cultural meaning behind it, behind the practice or whether it just becomes increasingly commodified and consumable. And I think there's, you know, reasonable, reasonable debates, valid debates on both sides. And I won't go into which is more, you know, valid or accurate at this point. But localization is one, um, uh, one field of thought within globalization studies that explains how practices become, cultural practices become globalized and then kind of reinterpreted and reappropriated within um, contexts and spaces that are, that are different from, the, from its origins. Yeah, I was curious too, you know, based off what you were saying, um, like to me, like the IOC is like this final stage, right? You kind of mentioned, right? It's like the final legitimator, big, you know, at this huge institutional level. Um, and then back to, I think, what Kyle and Abby were getting at about, you know, this is this art form, right? That then becomes sportified. It's like the idea of sportification, right? T taking things that have no competition elements and then sort of creating point systems or creating rankings or trophies. And like, that's where I'd be, love to like read more or I would have to like read more into the history of like kind of breaking culture and like how like this competition element has emerged over the last, you know, maybe it, competition emerges more in these kind of glocalized environments, right? Cause now, so then we actually see what that looks like at the IOC stage, right? Versus like, you know, back in the day there would be breaking competitions in New York city. Right. Like or like, you know, you could go you could go to a hip hop, you know, festival concert, there'll be a breaking competition, but it's not like I don't think anyone's like getting a point score. They just say someone wins. Right. So right? how is this you know, like, so, how is it scored? All that, yeah. that all that. Yeah, like stuff. the whole yeah. Like, rationalization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that's like, you know, so that's that's the other probably the interest because that's what because the IOC, they they're gonna definitely have like a point system. They're not just gonna have like it's not like a talent show, right? because I imagine like break a, it's a talent show, you got five people there. They're like, yeah, that person's the best, right? That's not like if that happened at the Olympics, that actually would be kind of cool, right? <laughs> but that wouldn't happen. <laughs> if it just yeah, had the right? crowd like, meter, no, who like, gets the loudest no. applause? Like, it I'd be should. down for that. Yeah, like right, that, yeah. like the crowd yeah. reaction, that yeah. energy like that, is its that, own that to me sort would of way space where they weren't like that. Actually, be like an homage, right? Yeah. Or like to acknowledge like what the roots are, right? Because because having a kind of a systematic rubric that's used to score these participants or con these contestants seems completely antithetical to the roots <laughs> of, of b-boying, of breaking. And we will put that, this isn't the only sport where that's the case though, right? No. no, for sure. I think that's such an interesting point about the sportifying of the art. Can the, can the art artify the sport, the sports world? Like, can we bring that, those sort of more, um, like harder to systemize elements of the the breakdancing culture into the Olympics, like the crowd, the crowd reaction being a part of how people make decisions on on whether something was impressive or not. Like, can we take the things that make it um, an art and and plop it onto the sports and make the sports adjust rather than the other way around? 
and, and this is a tension that always plays out. And we, uh, the, the fear is that the artistic and improvisational parts get labeled as not doing the sport correctly, right? Even though that's the actual roots. So we can even see that everything apparently leads back to LA, but we can think of the UCLA uh, gymnastic team where a lot of the women were getting attention because they were mixing in dance and like good music with gymnastics. And it was shared through social media, you know, there's news stories, but the traditionalists were like, well, that's not what we're actually judging on, right? That's not what it's supposed to be about. And we could even think with basketball, what we consider playing the game right and what we consider to be moving outside the bounds of sport when you do a move that's flashy and exciting and gets everyone excited. Oh, well, that's not that's not what it's about. That's the that's the extra thing. And here you're taking something. Are, you, are we going to do that? Was he turned into a sport? Um, the other thing I wanted to mention before we go on is uh, there's a great sociologist at University of Toronto, Ju Young Lee, who writes about breaking in, I think it was in Los Angeles, but he has a really good ethnographic study and he himself can, can break dance. And so I'd be really curious what he thinks about that, this move. Our next also. guest for so. you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also, yeah. um, I, I think the, the idea of the, uh, localization, that's not a term that I was very familiar with before you explained it, Stefan. So thank you. Um, but just the idea of like, is that a one way, like who's doing the, what is being localized and who's doing it. And, um, just, I, I think that the shared culture thing is so important and sort of crucial to healthy world it's just like who is taking what from where and putting it where because i mean i mean i don't think that that is necessarily the case for what has happened with the olympics but just this idea of like um the support of the olympics and the validation of the olympics sort of can change things and um i think that that will that they will look a certain way for doing that uh and and i don't know if i i want them to to get that credit but that doesn't mean I don't want them supporting that kind of um, just because I don't think that it will come with a lot of acknowledgement, as we might get into later, Alex, about the Negro Leagues with a lot of acknowledgement about like what's happened in the past. Um, so anyways, I just think that uh, it's just about it's is it the same people in the same institutions that get credit and uh, power? Continued. Absolutely. And so I think oh, yeah. just as my last comment, like who is doing the co-opting or globalizing in this case and for what purpose, like what their agenda is, absolutely matters. The context always matters in this case. And this is one of the reasons why I brought up like the non-exploitative and non-imperialistic nature of cultural sharing, because there have been throughout history, there have been incident, incidents where the sharing of culture, the sharing of culture has been forced or it has occurred in a way that is very much top down and not organic. And in those instances, like I, I think we would all agree that those those don't necessarily um, that kind of sharing isn't done to benefit you know all of humanity. It's done to benefit those in power. And uh, I think with the IOC, the the co-opting or the official the uh, the authorizing of breaking as as an Olympic sport um, should probably be seen in the in the more kind of exploitative and imperialistic lens, just because of what we know about the IOC and what they stand for. And how they select their official sports, um, but when it comes to like you know uh, people from other from like non-American countries outside the U.S. like seeing videos of of b-boying or, or breaking and then using that as inspiration to to create or to kind of recreate those types of cultural practices outside of New York or the U.S. in general, 
um, for the purposes of, of enjoyment and entertainment and identification. Like, I think those, that's clearly different, right? That's, 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 that's much more grassroots, more organic, more bottom, like bottom up. And those are the types of, I think, practices of cultural sharing that we can actually, you know, admire and celebrate. But oftentimes, that, that isn't all that we see, unfortunately. And it was so interesting in that NPR, NPR article you shared that the guy that they interviewed, I'm forgetting his name, but he's, you know, been around for a long time in the uh, breakdancing community. And he was saying that his big concern is is people wearing out their bodies, that that he, he does. He's not uh, uh, worried as worried about the IOC and, and the, sort of what that means. But just that, like people he's I think he said people are going to die sooner because of this being a competition maybe um uh, at such a high, uh, such a big stage with such high stakes um yeah. which was uh interesting that coming from the community of of breakers that's that's uh one of the concerns kind of the lesson of all sport as it becomes more professionalized it's really bad for your body sport is great for your body but the more you do it it can it reaches that point where suddenly it's really bad and you wear out everything so any, any physical practice that gets monetized and you have to compete to be the best. Great. Thanks, Stefan, for bringing that in. So, Alex. So I, the one thing uh, I thought brought up was uh, the recent sort of commentary, which is very much happening, I would say, amongst like feminist circles <laughs> in the sports world. Uh, sports Illustrated always does their sports person of the year awards which is generally around like you know an athlete who has success and i'm not actually really sure the criteria honestly it's like success and then maybe they're socially engaged or you know they had a breakout year but like i think lebron got it this year um you know they give it to i'm sure kaepernick got it in the past um but this year brianna stewart got it um because the storm won the nba WNBA title and then it was kind of tying her to her activism an engagement around what the WBA was doing in the bubble or the wobble, right? Around um, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, Black Lives Matter, Say Her Name campaign, et cetera. And Breonna Story, I think, is also involved in other um, social justice issues. Um, so after she gets acknowledged, then there is commentary from both women in sports journalism uh, and also players themselves. Um, criticizing why a white woman in the WNBA is sort of the face of uh, activism, right? Or is celebrated. Um, and you even had, and I thought, and again, this, this sort of just happened on the radar, but it's another good example of the WNBA being this different type of space where I think um, actually more nuanced <laughs> conversations are happening around uh, representation, um, recognition, um, and also you know, who's doing the yeah, recognition of who's doing the work and um, who should be um, who should be recognized, right? And I think what's interesting is Brianna Stewart is doing actually I think demonstrated a lot of what we consider white people being co-conspirators or allies, whatever kind of word you want to use. Um, but I also think this whole incidence of frustration because people were like, you know, there are other women such as Angel McCautry, um, there are like five five other players or name Montgomery, like you could have. You could have elevated them, right, to be the sports person of the year. And I the, actually, one of my takeaways was how limiting, again, individualism is, right? Because this, that's like the fact that this became like a frustrating story that people like kind of, kind of consider that it did harm was like even like the SI, like the imagination for who to recognize, right? 
there has to be an individual sports person that is the leader and that we should celebrate as the icon. And like that framework of thinking, I, like my takeaway was like cause them this struggle instead of having like a collective, because to me, when we all were, we talked about the WNBA and what they were doing, it was all like, this is incredible collective work, right? And, and you see individuals doing all these things, but you see them constantly acting as a group. They still are right around the Warnock and Luffler uh, race, right? And to see then like a, meet, a sports media, because I think sports media is so poor at trying to communicate what's happening, right? They do not have the, the range of analysis and voice, not all of them, but like as a collective industry. Um, it kind of comes through here. Like Sports Illustrated is not like doing this with any type of care. They're just like, hey, this is an individual, prop them up, let's go, let's celebrate. Because basically, and like this idea of social movements even, right, is always down to some iconic individual. And actually, that's why that was actually kind of a takeaway I had. I thought it was really interesting because, like, you saw all this frustration happen, people expressing anger and hurt, right? And all from just trying to elevate an individual. And then, and then we throw in the intersections of racism. And I, I bet that SI was, was like proud or patting themselves on the back before this was published, like with their decision, given that in some ways it, uh, it exemplifies their, their wokeness. And I, I say wokeness and with, 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 with air quotes because. Uh, I mean, she's a player in the WNBA, she's a woman, and this is in response, I imagine, not only to the Black Lives Matter protests and movement, but also to the Me Too movement, which is what, several years in now. And so in, in their mind, after having, you know, years and years of uh, male or male identifying athletes mm -hmm. on their covers as, you know, a sports person of the year, having a woman from the WNBA is probably a big deal for them. Right, but it again it highlights the limitations of sports media, sports journalism, and popular framings and discussions of sport. Going back to this kind of like this this hero, this savior, this lone person who is supposed to not only represent you know the the team or the league, but also broader movements Agreed. too. And I mean, I think Alex also mentioned like nothing against Brianna Taylor, like she's a fantastic athlete and ally. But clearly, like, there has to be recognition that these decisions matter and they are complicit in, you know, reinforcing specific biases or specific systems of inequality that have existed in sport and sport journalism for a long time. It's also another example of uh, building off your points of how let's celebrate athletes for having a well-articulated understanding of power and politics and social movements and often better articulated than the media covering them. And I think a lot of sloppy academics and people in popular culture are like, well, you know, the media, they're the educated people who understand how the stuff's work and they have to translate the voice of the athletes. No, the athletes are actually doing a better job here. And even in critiquing the decision, I thought they did a pretty good job of clarifying, hey, Brianna Stewart's awesome. We support what she's been doing. This is not a critique of her. We're not even saying that she should have like refused the award or something like that. But rather, let's look at what Sports Illustrated is, what they do, and who the people at Sports Illustrated are that make those decisions, which I think is the right right direction to go. And then I didn't even think of your point, which is even more important direction to go about how that pressure to choose the single individual. But I, I have appreciated the critiques of other athletes of the decision and not getting into that sloppy thing of like, well, why does she get the credit? I want the credit. That, it's, it's not, I haven't seen that at all. Absolutely. And we saw Time Magazine for their 
person of the year, they had two people and the New York Times endorsed two people for president. And it's okay to pick like a league for the people of the year. Like it's okay to celebrate a whole group of people for what they did, because really it was not one person alone. I mean, and the the examples that the article that you sent, Alex, point that, that, you know, those examples of individuals that did certain things, Angel McCautry coming up with the idea that they could wear Breonna Taylor's name on their back and and these hashtags and things like that. Um, I, I just think that, sure, we can like sort of weigh out and parse who did more, but the idea that a whole institution did a lot for this movement and has been doing a lot it's like that is so much more like worth celebrating more than the individual but but i i don't think that uh like you're saying stefan our media is is not we're, we're not equipped to to really uh lift that up versus you know just love the the story of of the the hero institution minus Kelly Loeffler. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She's the individual that can like pack it up. <laughs> but that's so fascinating too, to see how the institution can respond when there is a powerful figure from within that seems to have, uh, not just seems to, but does, <laughs> does have contradictory opinions over a lot of different political issues. And I think Brianna Stewart checks a lot of boxes as far as like the comeback story from this really severe injury. That's so exciting. Just won the championship. Uh, and um, I just think that like there's there's things about her that make it a very attractive story to to celebrate uh, that are separate from from the activism that she took part in. Absolutely, but this, this goes back to a point you raised earlier too about would would it have been kind of would it have, would it have been a cop out I guess um, if they had selected multiple individuals or a team or institution because we've seen other publications do it but I'm wondering if SI has if there's any precedence here, if that SI has ever had, you know, a co-person of the year or a co-athlete of the year or, you know, a team or institution rather than just a single individual. Because I don't, I don't know. It's been a while since I've subscribed to SI and, um, or even really read SI. But uh, if I, I think it's even the discussion of whether that is a cop-out is, a, is, is, an, is, is, a, is an interesting point too. Because of, of again of, of the ways in which sport is framed and dominant discourses that exist within sport that we see emerge too, so um, yeah, that would that would, I think there are so many so many interesting questions that emerge from just this one selection. In 1999, uh, the U.S. women's soccer team won it. There you go. Yeah, there's that's, precedent. That's, there you go. So there is precedent. Yeah. <laughs> And in 2018, the Golden State Warriors won it, which is kind of a funny, which is a funny precedent, because that's one where you actually probably could have given it to one of the Warriors. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But they were they were so torn with the Warriors about who to choose that they had to give it to the whole team. But in this case of this incredible political and social organizing, they had to choose just one. So uh, kind of kind of. Yeah, that was in 2018. Is that right? Yeah. 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 But it's also to be clear for like this year, their theme was the activist athlete. So that, that's what's I think big too about this year. Like they actually framed it as the theme is activist athlete, right? Did they release any, cause I know that like Donald Trump was also in the running for time person of the year, which is just like, are we, I mean, it's just crazy that that was something that might've happened. Oh but did Alex, do you know if there, if the, if SI mentioned anyone else that uh, yeah, I mean, 
I was actually just looking recently. I, like, cause like Maya Moore was acknowledged too, but yeah, th- they have a few other people that were in the yeah. Like you like scroll through the website, but I don't think that makes the. But they only had the five winners. Um, but yeah, again, also pretty. Not to get too down the media rabbit hole, but like even like what's happened to Sports Illustrated as like a magazine, right? Like, and then so sure. <laughs> even, who knows? Like it's been gutted. Um, and even what you you had mentioned this uh, on our first podcast, but just that you know when we were talking about the NBA, that the NBA is like a mainstream black space within the United States, an institution that sort of white people pass in and out of, but like the core of the population of it. Uh, and the same with the WNBA. So the fact that on top of all of this, that, you know, the WNBA is 80% black it, and that the person that they're choosing to celebrate on this really, really large platform is is a white woman, um, even if she is deserving of it. Uh, it's, it's an interest, it's, it's a, uh, a weird decision. It's a weird decision. I think I, I was going to say it's interesting. I was yeah. going to say it's tough, but it's, it's just weird. I think <laughs> it's just weird. So that's a little more info, like then, so they have the, they have the five sports persons of the years and they have an SI awards where they, which they give about, so they have like, and then I'm just looking through them. And so like, it's just, it's just all over the place. There's like team of the year, play of the year, Muhammad Ali legacy award, player of the year, best dressed. <laughs> and then like what, who won that? DeAndre Hopkins won the best dress. <laughs> your end of the that was the only one I needed to actually <laughs> first one I had to interrupt. Like, <laughs> but like so like my Maya Moore got inspiration of the year, right? So like they made like a separate category and stuff. But yeah, not the in terms of the big headline, like the five people of the year, right? That's different. These kind of random little awards. Because I guess I guess magazines need award shows now. They have like an award show. Are we doing one of those? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the Darren and Silver awards. awards. Yeah, the Prof Awards. Yeah. <laughs> Quirkiest take. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Alex, let's get into the Negro Leagues and the stats from the Negro Leagues, the uh, MLB, deciding that those stats should belong in the Major League uh, archives and, and the, the players who hold those stats being incorporated into uh, Major League Baseball history and some of the leaderboards being changed because of it. Um, so do you want to start off? Sure. I mean, I just find this really fascinating and like, actually, I'm not even sure how I feel about it. Um, and I think Howard Bryant, that's why I shared the Howard Bryant article. Cause I think he's, he's brilliant. I and mean, I'd use it in class um, for sports classes. I think he's an excellent thinker and writer. Um, and like, when I first saw the news, I was like, Whoa, like I, it, it really caught me off guard that like the MLB even like was going to formally like incorporate or recognize uh, this history, right? And even and even like to do like a record book type of work. So I think initially, I think a lot of us, a lot of people were like, "Well, this is cool. Like this is a good thing, like a general positive thing." But after reading Howard Bryant's article and thinking a bit more, I then thought about like, you know, what does it actually mean to just be included in the records? right to be recognized after being screwed over right and this like gets into actual ideas about like reparations and actually trying to resolve generational trauma trauma like across right in america across multiple racial groups in this case black folks um and then i was like oh this is some bs <laughs> right because mlb is not actually um 
and how Brian writes about this, but like there really isn't, they say like it was a mistake, but then there's really nothing being done <laughs> still to like address the family. Like I think even like talk to the families that were harmed, right? There's like descendants of these players, right? There isn't really a true statement about like how the major leagues are active, actively destroyed the Negro leagues, right? That's, it's, usually, it's, it's all framed as like, oh, you know, integration happened and, you know, baseball became this. And Jackie Negro, Robinson. Jackie Robinson happened <laughs> and like the Negro leagues, you know, they faded. Because it's not even like an accurate history of the Negro League. Like Negro leagues were all like, it was talking about like actually what we were talking about earlier, you know, they might seem this obvious connection like to the, to the Rochester Razorbacks. Like the Negro leagues were very like. Razor Sharks. Razor Sharks, excuse me. Not that, that, <laughs> not much, very important. Uh, the Razor yeah. Sharks. But like the Negro leagues were constantly stopping and starting different forms. It wasn't like one Negro league that existed throughout time. Like they were differently. So like, even the history is so much more complicated, rich, and nuanced. And actually, I think this does kind of flattens it. Right. It's like it actually is a way to now paint a picture of the MLB being like this kind of like very learned and now like I don't forget the words progressive, just like a place that an institution that understands everything and is now good. And so actually that's how I've actually felt frustrated uh, thinking about it, because that's where it felt very much. How could they respond surface level? How can they respond to such pressures? And they did in a way which in, in the past, actually, you, you could not even imagine like I know that most of us could not imagine this type of move which speaks to how much pressure, right, how our social world is changing. But then it's like, okay, what's actually in the imagination or will of MLB as an institution? It's actually not that much. They view this as like a really important step. But to me, it's like, oh, this is really just kind of gross and kind of clever on their part. So that's where I'm at with that. But I think it's fact. And this goes to the point Stefan made earlier, imagining the people at Sports Illustrated making this decision and patting themselves on the back and be like, look at this great move we did. Everyone's going to celebrate us. Done. Not actually think, but not actually thinking through more deeply about what the implications are, or what they're doing. Right. So they checked off that box. We finally did this thing. People have been asking. Let's let's wait for the applause to come in. And, then- and I think what I really liked just to reiterate one of Howard Bryant's main points is that the Negro Leagues to say that they are to the Negro leagues does not need white MLB to recognize the validity of what they did. That's what pisses. That's what pisses power Brian off. When I read it, I was like, yeah, this is infuriating because it's like they sanction, they don't have any power to sanction or make official what those and like, that was not in the language, right? Like the language, like now they are a part of us. They didn't want, we don't want to be a part of this. Y'all didn't want us, <laughs> right? So, and like, don't ignore that history. Like, okay, well, we didn't want you forever. We, we, we beat you down. Now you're good after the fact. Like, it's wild. It's wild when you actually- just Like, way it. after the fact. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I way, mean, just yeah. almost, I mean, shy of, like, 100 years after the fact um, of the integration of Major League Baseball. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, so- I also, you know, this coming on the heels of the Cleveland baseball team saying that they will change their name, like, I kind of also fell into the trap of being like, oh, okay, like, there's some movement being made here. Like, this is exciting. Some institutions are are changing. And then it it does, um, it does feel like there's this, this sort of things are just going unacknowledged. And even the language that MLB used in their news release saying that they are correcting an oversight. It's just like, that's a joke. Like a, a, a 80 year long 
oversight, you know, just um, of uh, and and there have been people pushing for this to happen. The um, Oh, I just had the article pulled up, but there's an NPR article about uh, the man who runs the Negro League Baseball Museum in uh, Kansas City. And he is talking about that he found out about this news from a tw- uh, an alert because he has set his phone to get uh, alerted for, you know, if there's any news about the Negro Leagues, he gets an alert. And it's just like, he couldn't get a call? Like, he's been advocating for this. Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, whoever works for him, didn't think to maybe reach out to him ahead of time and say, like, we're going to make this decision. Maybe... You could be a part. I mean, I guess that that would also be like using unless they have like an ongoing relationship that could be its own like form of like using his work as like kind of a prop for them because this whole thing feels really um, not not done with the best intentions or thoroughly explained. But I just think that like there's just this tendency to really skip over so much. And even the way that like ESPN acknowledges like the the um, 100 year anniversary of the Negro Leagues, it's like. Well, it's just acting like, yeah, you know, that was wrong back then without taking any into account, like everything that has or has not happened since around racism and systemic racism in the United States. So it just feels like it's so easy to be like, that was back then. And this is now when, you know, and and like you said, Alex, just this this celebration of what I, I believe if the NBA is a uh, sort of black institution, the the baseball is sort of a white institution as it is now this like validation again of of do we is that the kind of is that how we write this wrong is through this type of validation Um, especially when it comes with very little explanation of why now and I feel like that's an important question like that that people have to account for I mean of course like you know there's the obvious answer if we're in a specific we had this all these events occur this year in this country that like led us led many people to believe that we have to have like a real conversation around fixing a lot of issues um but at the same time it's like these issues existed 20 years ago. Why why wouldn't we have done this then or 40 years ago or whenever? So I think that I wish that the that MLB was held to a, to answer for more rather than just getting a pat on the back. It ties so directly into Stefan's conversation too in that these are basic sociological questions. It's not it's not just the decision that gets made, but who makes the decision? Why do they make the decision? Who gets the recognition for the decision too? Right? That's a big thing with the is the IOC looking to get some po- positive publicity for themselves? Is MLB looking to get positive publicity in response? Same as hanging a you know Black Lives Matter flag on the wall and being like, look, we support this, right? Look, we made this decision. Celebrate us rather than letting it be more organic or pointing to the people who have struggled and saying, now you get to tell the story. Um, so I I see so many overlaps with the stories that we've brought up. Yeah. Well, first, uh, Rob Manfred is, is trash, and he is by far the, the worst commissioner of any major sporting league in, in the United States, and that's a really low bar. Already. He's the IOC of um, commissioners. <laughs> yes, exactly. But second, this is like this is really no different from the way um, the ways in which the MLB has approached integration and heralded Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson Day over the past several decades, like. It's, it's so superficial, it's so cosmetic. It doesn't actually go any deeper than the surface. And I, that's, I'm sure, entirely the point. Like, it, given, given the makeup of the league, given the makeup of their fan base, given the makeup of the um, uh, of administrators and owners, 
Like there really is no reason for MLB to go any further. And this is simply just kind of like, they know the political climate and that something has to be done. And it's, this is their concession. Like it's, it's, it's so obvious on the surface what they're doing um, that it's like, it's, it's like not even disappointing at this point because this is what ML, this is what MLB does. Like even their response to, or their lack of response to um, the, the protests and social movements that have happened earlier this year, like how, like at the very least, the NBA took a league-wide stance at the response of the players union and the players. Uh, MLB did basically nothing and individual teams and players were then asked to, or were then permitted to, to make their own calls. And like, so we, I think it's the, MLB, the MLB's position on this is really obvious. They have a very colorblind approach and they think that's the way to approach things because, um, of, because of who their fan base is and what they stand for. And um, the fact that this is occurring now and even, even like, even especially in relation to how they've previously responded to these types of, I mean, to, 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 to discussions and, and issues around, around race and racism within the league. Like it's, uh, it's, it's par for the course. It's, it's, it's like, it's what they do. And um, yeah, it's, it's not surprising in the least. Can I offer an important correction to what Stefan said? <laughs> I don't, that's, that's a high bar when you say that the, he's the worst commissioner of all, of all the sports. All the major I think, sports. I don't know if you, I don't know people, if people you count, argue if you count the UFC as a major sport, Dana White gets the, leads the pack, but maybe you could say it's a little more minor. But he uh, not only yeah, did nothing yeah. in, re- in response to Black Lives Matter. He went and spoke at the for for Donald Trump repeatedly. So I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> go with Dana White. Also, can edit to put you on the spot. Do any of you know who the commissioner of hockey is of the NHL? Isn't it still Gary Bettman? Or did he leave? Oh, good job. I had no yeah, I had no idea. I know hockey fans. <laughs> hockey fans can't stand him. But I don't, oh really? I don't know why. I don't. I don't. I think he like, also has some like really yeah. shitty stances on concussions and uh, things around uh, sort of yeah, like I think it, caring yeah. for for former players and what former players, retired mm. players might might. I mean, this is gotcha. through one real sports that I remember him being kind of a villain. We might need a podcast where it's each of us get ninety seconds. To argue <laughs> yeah. <for the> well, <laughs> we know who the best is, right? I mean, that's easy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Seems a little unfair. I know it's obviously Roger <laughs> Goodell. <laughs> um, I would. I just want to add. So I agree, like about like how this reflects what MLB approaches with race and diversity, and you know their colorblind approach. I'm all with that. I think for me, it's it is helpful to try to like imagine how an organization can be different. Like, so even like to like break it down, like, yes, they're responding to their fan base or they'll say like, you know, our fans aren't interested in this. And I actually just fundamentally reject that because fans are going to watch baseball. Like they're not actually like, so in this case, with regards to the Negro leagues, like I was thinking like, what would actually be, you know, you can't go back in time, right? What can this organization do? That's good. Right. To sort of truthfully, and genuinely acknowledge like harm done and and in a way and then and and to offer recognition right so i'm like could you offer could you say yes we will we want you in the record book we recognize this as like this is this should be officially record keeping for american baseball history right which that to me i'm like yeah sure we want to amplify that this league was valid and equal on skill level like like that's the language being used right rather than the language of like incorporation, right? So that in terms of like what a statement is. And I also think 
you know, and then the next step would be like, because again, they, the idea for me would be you have to acknowledge that, hey, you know, when we integrated Jackie Robinson or forget Jackie Robinson, just say like we actively were not really interested in the New York League's thriving. They were a competitor, right? Like that, like, even if that was said, like, we're not, it's not going to change anything. Like, we're not going to have black run baseball leagues anymore. But like, even to like, it's like the truth telling about the history, right? Be like, no, we know as an organization, we actively did harm, owners did harm, et cetera. Now, Steph and I agree, like, will they acknowledge that or they even believe that? Like, I don't know. But in terms of, like, how I would imagine this to even, like, not leave such a disgusting taste, right, on your mouth, it'd be, it'd be something like that. It would be to say, you know, we know we actively, like, destroyed or, or harmed the earning potentials, right, et cetera. Not, like, we made a – what was the language used, Abby? Uh, oh, an oversight. Long-time yeah. <laughs> oversight, long right? like, oversight or to something. To me, like, like, that is the type of thing. And, like, the idea is, like, guess what? If they made – this gets back to image what Kyle's talking about. Like, I think so often we think that these professional sports leagues and just businesses, they all operate on the idea of PR. And they, I think they, I think PR is overstated in terms of how people are going to consume people's products of sports, right? Like the NFL is at terrible PR for God knows how long and people are still going. Right. Um, and so with baseball, it's like no one, the, the fan base because the fan base is not going to see like a truly honest statement about what MLB did regarding the Negro, Negro leagues and stop going to games. It's not going to affect their bottom line. Right. So that's me. Like, even like the framework of thinking about this, right. is so limiting. Um, and so again, what do I think major league baseball would do such a thing? But like, I had hoped that there might be people in the organization eventually, like if key people get hired that actually, no, we should do an honest like recognition of harm done. Right. And guess what? They would not suffer on the bottom line. And then we could critique them like if that's enough, like that gets us into like that's a different type of level. Like, okay, well, how do you act? Can you actually redress such harm? And my answer would be no. Right. The harm has been done. And but then to pretend that like adding people into the record books is enough. Like that's what's really frustrating. I like to me personally, I can handle an organization that has benefited from this this system of white supremacy has reinforced it. If they actually got to the point and said, we acknowledge that we did this, <laughs> um, I think that would be huge. And then we could, act, like, that would be something where I'd be like, okay, at least you could, that is some type of step, right? And not, not accepting that we're actually going to get to some, like, wonderful place of reconciliation on this. But that to me, like, is, po- that to me should actually be possible in a way that doesn't impact MLB's image. Like, their image would not take a hit. It wouldn't. My only thing is that, so I agree with what you're what you're saying now, stating Alex. But my only thing is that um, if if the league were to do that first, it wouldn't be the MLB. Like they wouldn't even be second or third. Like they would be like way down the line. Uh, uh, well, they're only like four major sporting leagues. So like, it, um, it certainly wouldn't be the MLB just because of how they have approached this historically. The fact that they heralded integration as opposed and while ignoring everything that happened before then for so long, and this is then their gesture towards acknowledging what happened before integration. Like it's, they're the silence speaks volumes, right? And um, it's just, I, I, I agree that like, focusing too much on PR is, is, is limiting, um, but, I, but I do think that uh, that movie made a calculated move and they didn't want to put more energy and um, resources into this. And this was in, in their mind, the most they had to do to appease people um, without necessarily like affecting their fan base. They could have done more, obviously, 
but this was the least they could do and and probably the easiest move and gesture they could make. And that's what they took. And the fact that MLB is that this is their approach to to redress is like is I don't know, it's it's uh it's it's depressing but also so so unsurprising. I guess my thing, my my building off what you're saying, is like the imaginary white MLB fan because that's what they imagine yeah. as their fan base, right? They don't care. They don't care if the MLB made this statement. Like there might be some conservative like nonsense being talked about, like oh the MLB be virtuous, like some of that conservative trash. But like I fundamentally, I don't think they they actually I, they don't care. Like if they even if MLB did, if MLB had a shift in organizational culture. The fan would not care. They would not know. Yeah, I, um, I I think that there's this question, and Howard Bryant brought this up, this idea of sort of what happens in 40 years when someone's researching, doing a research paper on the um, on MLB, and like the official record is that these statistics are held together, and we don't have the the same official record that carries that's like a primary source that shows that there was this oversight like who's in charge of like keeping track of the oversight how do we how who who archives the oversight um and I, of course i'm using the word oversight with just as like a joke because you know with lots of quotes <laughs> quotes on everything so i just think that like that that is the question like there is a little bit of rewriting of history here to in order for this uh very powerful white institution to get kind of like a pat on the back um, for for doing the right thing, more quotes. Um, so I think that that is an issue. And I just want to read this little snippet from the Howard Bryant uh, article. So MLB's news release referred to the decision as correcting an oversight, but the Negro Leagues were not the result of an oversight. And to frame their exclusion as such is stunningly offensive. It was a deliberate system. The major leagues destroyed ha a half century of black baseball history and baseball history in general with one unrelenting purpose in mind do their part in reinforcing black inferiority to the rest of the country. And so like, I feel like that is, that has to be, I mean, Howard Bryant is by pointing this out so eloquently and directly is, is also being like the keeper of that, of that oversight. Uh, and I feel like that's what's important because a lot of things will get sort of, um, a lot of things I think within our four major sports leagues get kind of washed over and and um, uh, forgotten when there was a lot of uh, injustices throughout this whole time. And so I just think it's there should be like a museum of fucked up shit that the four major sports leagues have done throughout history. Where would you? What city uh, is that located? Because we need to. Oh, I totally go to that place. Maybe Tucson. I was, like, I, I was thinking Boston. That's where I put it. <laughs> sure, Boston. Tucson. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there could be <laughs> the majority of it could be about the Red Sox. <laughs> um, sure, Celtics. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, I yeah, just so think that, like, <laughs> yeah, we're so quick to want to celebrate. And I mean, I think that I've been thinking also lately about, like, the symbolic gestures that we've been kind of bothered by or, or um, that have not felt totally honest around Black Lives Matter and in these sporting leagues. I'm just wondering, like, at what point, if the gestures continue, at what point do they just become a part of the culture? At what point do symbolic gestures just be a part of that? And then things, that institution is changed because they were faking it for a while. Um, and I, I think that there could be value in that, but someone or some... I mean, I, I hopefully it's not just one person, but I just think that like we need to to track 
uh, the wrongs that were done in a more organized way, in an accessible way, so that 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 truth is like uh, and, safe. And since it's the holiday season, I'll end uh, I'll end this on an optimistic note. Um, I would say the one the one positive is I am in, I I am happy that a piece like Howard Bryant's runs in ESPN. Right? It is. I am still. I'm glad that you can still see that critical commentary, real sociological analysis, right, of of what's going on appear in a place that is easily locatable by a sports fan rather than not being pushed to the margin. So um, that's that's the one happy part of the story. <laughs> totally. This was the first article that came up. Like if you if you Googled uh, Negro Leagues MLB, this this was the first one that came up, which is an, an important one to read. More important than the MLB's press release, for sure. This episode of Dear Adam Silver is brought to you by Bookman's. What better time than now to support our favorite local businesses? And for me here in Tucson, it's Bookman's. I was just at Bookman's the other day, and they had just what I was looking for, which was the book Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill, which was supposed to be a Christmas gift for my sister, but I just had to read it myself first. Chaos unpacks and rethinks the concept behind the helter-skelter prosecution of the Manson family by the infamous prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi. This book is fascinating and really calls into question the original determinations made around the case and ties the murders to the U.S. government in more ways than one. I really recommend it. And so back to Bookman's, it's very important now in the pandemic more than ever to shop and spend our money locally and with businesses we care about and trust. Bookman sells used books, records, movies, musical instruments, and more, and is a wonderful community-oriented store where the shelves are actually stocked with items brought in by the community. In addition to shopping, you can also trade your own used items in at Bookman's for cash or store credit. Bookman's has curbside pickup for books ordered ahead of time and for selling in trades. Please visit www.bookmans.com for more information and to find your nearest location. And remember, Bookman's has cool cover. I just want to mention a quick other note that I had about 30 for 30 putting out a podcast about March 11th, 2020, the day that the NBA shut down. Um, And I just think that this is just an ongoing issue I have with like us reflecting on things that we're too close to reflect on and like this need for content this like desperate need to like continue making content it's crazy to me that this is coming out when the nba is reopening and there's been so there's been a lot of positive tests um and after they had this you know true the wmba and the nba had this like amazing accomplishment with the bubble and and keeping people so safe and investing so much there that like I have not listened to the 30 for 30 yet, so I I can't speak to exactly what's in it. But just this idea that, like, aren't there other things to talk about right now? Can't we wait for a little more time to pass, maybe like a year to reflect on this? We're still we all the issues that were there on March 11th are here today and much, much, much worse. Like, how can we reflect on this when we are still in it? So that that was like my bone to pick with with fellow podcasters. (laughs) We're all desperate for content. It's just like we don't have to um, just, you know, ask your friends to be on your show. <laughs> if, if we're uh, if we're about to probably some kind of oh, sorry, you go out, uh, Stefan. Well, this is probably some kind of package deal that, like, because given given that that the NBA played at Disney World, and they, I, I'm sure they get a ton of money from from Disney, 
Like this was probably some kind of agreement. Like after this is all over, we need a fluff piece on how how great we reacted to to, to the COVID pandemic right. in early March. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Totally. No, I mean, it, it, it seems like a good, um, I mean, for PR purposes, and it's just, as far as like what we're archiving right now, like this discrepancy that we have with the Negro Leagues, and then this, this need to like, uh, just turn around and talk about everything as soon as it happens when we don't really have that perspective. Uh, yeah, it's just questionable. So I, I don't know if yeah, you were going to move us to the to the short um, kind of things we're excited about, but I wanted to I don't want to make the podcast go forever. But I, I was hoping we could really sure. briefly talk about what Alex uh, brought up in the chat about Carl Anthony Towns. And I don't know if you want to introduce that. But I thought that was a, a really important point as we move into the season, especially as three of us were uh, our homes were in Minneapolis for a while. So maybe do you mind bringing that up, Alex? And I thought we could do that, talk about that really, really quickly. Is that okay, Abby? Absolutely. No, that's that's a, such a poignant place to start. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about, you know, we're, we're in our chat Google Doc about, you know, fun things or things we're looking forward to with the NBA and just general sports world. Um, and I was looking at the T-Wolf score. I read a couple, I read, Clad read a few articles about Carl Anthony Towns and like losing his mother to COVID and like they were really close and like learning about how like, um, like his love of basketball or like his desire to keep playing is often was actually really tied to like her love of watching him play. So even if we think about like who's like why, the idea of like why NBA players are doing this, like the people viewing basketball as a job or a passion or both. Like for him, it was like, he kind of talks about basketball being something for his mom. Right. And so, and on top of that, so the T Wolves played last night. They win. There's the, yeah, like the game ball. He like played incredibly down the stretch. And then I learned that he actually has lost seven family members due to COVID. And I did not, cause I, and it was already heavy enough um, by losing his mother. And I thought just too, as the NBA is restarting, I mean, like, or restarting in this form that's not a bubble that is like, you know, travel, talking about the amount of resources they're putting into keeping this going. Um, but just to, like see the human um, loss element of this. Um, and to think about like, you know, how do we, how do, how does the media out of fans process like players playing through this? Like to have someone play through a pandemic, a pandemic that has dramatically shaped his life forever in traumatic ways. The way he talks about it is so heavy. Um, and the pain is so uh, deep and to think like, you know, and then the NBA machine goes on and like, I watched, I've watched some games already. I enjoyed it. Right. I mean, I'll look for it. You know, I'm interested in, you know, I was texting y'all about Wiggins being Wiggins, you know, like you have all this stuff that we get as like forms of escape enjoyment, right. Bonding. Um, but I think in general with COVID, we talk about like the athletes and just like how much pain is being done just to continue on with sport. Right. So I think for me, like what for Carl Anthony Towns and even how we, we frame it, because like I'm curious how it's like talked about, because this will be a narrative now for him. Right. That surrounds his interviews. Like so it's interesting to see his interviews because he's being very like brutal, like vulnerable. Like he's like, I'm not the same person like this. Basketball is not my therapy. Like he is actually busting a lot of these kind of myths we put along with sport and like how it helps people through trauma. So I think even like he's kind of disrupting that and that kind of narrative discursive level, but I think it's just something we have to sit with 
um, and think about. Um, and, and he's just one example. Like we could pick other athletes who are struggling. And he, we're not even thinking about the athletes, like the staff members, right? There's people just all tied to the sports. Like, it's like other essential the, the work. Thing I, I think appreciate especially so much why I really wanted you to share that story basketball. is I, I love how he's being so brutally honest and interrupting that, that comment story that we, we love to celebrate, right? It's, it's not, you know, Brett Favre throwing the touchdown pass the, you know, two days after his father dies and pointing up and being like, my father's watching or Isaiah Thomas had that incredible moment in the playoffs after his sister died. And that, that should be celebrated, but Tim just being like, Hey, this is hard. <laughs> like this is, this is, this is disrupting me. It's not like I can just go out on the court and love what I do. I, I want sports to have to dwell on that and not be able to simply be like, but luckily he has his job and continues on. Like that's not, that's not what's happening. Let's acknowledge that these are people and it. And we're so bad at doing that. Even when we like to celebrate athletes as people, we still want to celebrate them as machines that produce um, whether it's the smallest thing about playing through an injury or whether it's just emotionally devastating thing that can happen to someone. So I'm, I'm glad he's not letting us have that happy narrative that just sells tickets. It's also a critique of, of masculinity and of what we consider to be dominant ideal no notions of masculinity within American society, especially as it relates to sport and how athletes, especially male athletes are supposed to be these kind of sturdy oaks, you know, who are emotionless or if they have emotions, it's always in kind of a constructive, positive way. Right. And, or I mean, it, it emerges in ways that's constructive to their participation in sport. And um, I think, yeah, I think Carl Anthony Towns clearly, clearly um, like transgressing from that, clearly shooting those kind of tropes down through, uh, through, his, through, through, through what he's articulated in his interviews is, is really important because it at the very least yeah, it forces us to take a step back and reflect on, on these tropes, on these discourses and the ways in which they circulate throughout um, their, our interaction with sport and more broadly, you know, sport media, um, how sport is popularly represented and, and so on. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I, I feel so badly for him. Um, and then also feel badly for athletes who haven't had the platform to perhaps share these same thoughts, even if, even as they're thinking about it. So thinking about not only like, you know, their, their role as laborers, as workers, but um, also how it intersects with notions of gender, um, race, is really, is really important here. Imagine if he didn't play. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine what the commentary would be. How many, how many retired players would step up and criticize him, right? Versus how many players would support him. And I would, I would guess we would hear a lot more criticism of being like, well, he still has to get out there because that's his job. Like, I don't, we're, we're giving him space to grieve as long as he continues to produce which he is. Oh, go ahead, Stefan. No, I, I might've forgotten what I was going to say. Really quickly though, like I'm thinking also about other athletes who have perhaps called to attention the kind of absurdity of all of this in different ways, like James Harden, for example. Like, so Carl Anthony Towns is being, is being, um, is, is seen as a sympathetic figure at this point. Whereas James Harden has been vilified for what he's been doing, and I'm I'm sure I've I've participated in part of that too because I don't like James Harden as a player, but um, like really when it comes down to it, like his actions maybe not explicitly so, but at least implicitly are calling to attention the absurdity of the fact that a league uh, a, a league as large as the NBA and who just months ago were playing in a bubble. Um, 
is acting as if everything is normal again, right? And he's become this kind of scapegoat for, um, uh, for like self responsibility, like over lack thereof. And whereas the league, like the league, the league gets a pass in many ways for for what it's doing right yeah, now. It's a shift in responsibility. And, um, Before it was the institution that was responsible for coming up with a system of safety. Now it's you, the players, have to be safe, and if you don't, you let us all down. Right. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's very neoliberal. I was going to say that. I was, <laughs> I was avoiding that yes. <laughs> But it's also, it also, oh, it shows God. how much the knowledge around the coronavirus is so sloppy and the rules, we don't really, we don't really understand why the certain rules are in place or not in place. Part of the story is James Harden had the coronavirus previously. So I can imagine in his mind, he's thinking, Hey, I can't get this again. I have the antibodies. I was sick. So why can't I go do this thing? I'm actually safe. Now we could say, well, that's not fair. The rest of the team has to follow these rules. We don't actually know hundred percent how the science works. There's still risk involved until we, you know, there's all these, all these complicating factors, but for him, I, and again, like I'm, I, I struggle because I'm critical of James Harden. Um, I don't think the way I, I don't think it's fair to uh, Stephen Silas, who's a, as a new coach, to have to deal with this. It's that's really difficult. And I'd like Silas to have success, but I I also do have some sympathy for Harden, being like, all right, now you're now we're moving forward with the league. You've had coronavirus previously. There's responsibilities on you that we don't necessarily place on most people in society. And, and we're not placing on you know it's just like the the NBA players are being told to behave in a way that not everyone else is in order to make this work, um, including our president, vice president, secretary of state, like people who have positions of power uh, are uh, hosting events that NBA players would not be allowed to attend. So it just uh, it seems really um, contradictory. And also about Carl Anthony Towns, it's like, I mean, I like this losing seven family members. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine that type of, within such a short amount of time of the same thing, like that type of pain. And also to that to be what's in the news every day, like that that COVID, that the thing that has sort of ravaged your family to a certain extent is also just being talked about constantly. It's like, there's not really, I mean, of course you can choose to not listen to the news or whatever, but it's like everyone, that's what, that's what we, is on our brain collectively and it's just uh i just can't there's no escaping there's no break from from what took yeah so it's just like he i just uh, yeah i think too when i reading about one just like pain yeah painful really sad for him and his family I think too, like to connect his loss to structural inequalities. This is a, his family is black and I think Dominican, I'm pretty sure, right? Like more mostly New York City based. We know COVID has wrecked particular communities, right? Particularly black and brown people, um, working lower working class people. It's like you see that structural violence be happen for him uh, individually, and then I think too back to like we're talking about like disrupting narratives of gender masculinity. Um, and I think even how the sports world and like sports worlds of like hero and triumph, right? Like, and actually, and then tying back to what you're talking about, like how we need content all the time. Like I worry like in six months time, 
the T-Wolves are struggling for the eighth seed. Don't do right. them already, Alex. Like the sporting stuff and all the, you know. Yeah. They're undefeated. No, no. They're undefeated and so get the far. Eight seed, okay. That's great. Uh, <laughs> no, a big, big win. Big win versus the Pistons. Um, but I, I worry, right? Like, so this in terms of how we remember and understand things. Like, so for him, I think he'll, he'll have this different relationship to sports. And like, I'd actually be curious, like two years down the road, right? Like, how do we, how do we emotionally deal with death? And like, how do we view athletes? Or just even workers, right? Like how you know people. How do you supposed to move on with like trauma? And in the sports world, is so ill-equipped, right, to deal with this. It's like the one of the one of the worst public institutions around dealing with like death and pain, right? Because of how how it operates, and how how like how people interact with fans and stuff. And like the, as we see, even with the pandemic, to continue on playing, we have to get to the next record. We have to record the next game. And like, so the T-Wolves say, you know, say they, the T-Wolves kind of don't do that great, you know, or they have, a, they, they collapse in some season in the next year or two, right? And then people are just ripping Carl Anthony Towns. Like even the idea of like ripping these players, like it takes on such another level, right? In this case, right? As he continues to go on for the NBA to work for his org. Again, not saying he has agents, he want, he's wanting to play. He's just deciding to play. But I think even as we're talking, like, you know, T-Wolves go on a five-game losing streak. He has a – because people have been ripping Carl Anthony Towns for the last couple of years. Like, he gets torched all the time, right? And so, like, that's why it's grosser because, like, now he is the sympathetic figure. But, like, this is it going to be temp- – is it going to be temporal, right? And, like, that's what I, I worry about um, long-term. Yeah. The, no, the hungry the hungry media so will, will make a, a narrative and a story um, – <laughs> Yeah. And shine a spotlight on anything, even if that person is is not wanting that. Uh, so I'm worried about my computer dying. So let's get let's let from us. I think all <laughs> being on the, somewhat of the same page of feeling hesitant about or that you know what we don't need right now is for basketball to be professional basketball to be being played again necessarily, but it is being played again. So. Um, just any comments about uh, anything you've seen this season, anything you're excited about that you just want to chime in? Probe City. <laughs> so, Stefan, when you were off the call earlier, I shared with Alex and Kyle that uh, based on the game last night between Phoenix and uh, the Mavs that uh, the Suns will be or Phoenix will be known as Probe City because Devin Booker and uh, CP3 both love to like probe and there's just very little <laughs> passing going on and a lot of probing and Probe City sounds weird and uncomfortable. Well, yeah. So Aren't you in the center um, of like alien sightings and UFOs, so it kind of goes with it goes with yeah. the Southwest. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it works. it's yeah. uh, on on, it uh, on theme. So um, <laughs> they played really. The, I am really excited about the Suns this year and last. Last night was a taste of that. They they were fouling a lot and turning the ball over a lot, and they still won. So um, undefeated for a while now, and I'm excited about that. So uh, looking forward. Uh, the Warriors, of course, uh, did not have such a great start, so I'm feeling a little... Well, you know, Draymond wasn't there, and that's what I'm saying. I'm saying Draymond wasn't there. <laughs> that's the answer. So um, that's what I'm I'm putting... So my uh, my excitement ties in a little bit to that. So I'm excited about all the different redemption stories that are happening around the NBA. So a, a season where there's a lot of really good players returning from injury. So uh, we got Durant and Kyrie are really exciting to see back, especially Durant, who's moving really well. 
Uh, we've got John Wall and Boogie Cousins finally playing together in Houston and John Wall looking surprisingly good after that much time off. So I'm really excited to see the two of them together. And again, I'm sad that the focus has been completely on Harden because um, I'm really curious what those two can do together. I think Westbrook is in a redemption tour, even though he wasn't injured in the same way. Being in Houston almost <laughs> sets up a season of redemption <laughs> because people just forgot that he was good somehow, even though he had COVID, even though he had an injury to his leg as an explosive player. Uh, people criticize his performance in the bubble, but I'm excited. He had a triple-double in his first game back, which which was great to see. And potentially Wiggins. I still believe in Wiggins having his redemption tour. The first game did not give me much... Uh, <laughs> much basis for that but i think that wiggins is going to have his season uh and then i i am gonna get on board with that immediately yeah. kyle yes absolutely so still, this is, it was because green one green just because there. green wasn't there wiggins exactly green is going exactly to give wiggins the energy which strangely didn't show any like excitement about playing again <laughs> the first game and then finally harry giles the third has made it to the trailblazers left the Kings and their dysfunctional organization behind. And I'm ready to see Giles develop and become the player that I think he can be. Cause I think as long as he is remains healthy, which is the pattern for all these players, I think Giles can still be an awesome contributor to a good team. So I'm excited to see all that happen. Um, and I'm confessing that last night when I was watching the nuggets and Kings, I actually wanted the nuggets to win, which is the first time that's happened. And I haven't spoken this out loud yet until, until this moment. What? Don't don't ask me to cut no, this out I, later. I this think is it. I think I didn't. You don't know how you feel until you're like your emotions <laughs> kick in because it's not necessarily a rational thing. I've held on to my love of the Kings this long. Last night, the Kings finally won in overtime, <laughs> and I was actually rooting against them for the first time in like 20 years. And I and I think that was my punishment for wanting the Nuggets to win, and then the Nuggets. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I'm all confused, but that's, those are my things I'm excited about. Yeah. <laughs> Alex. Yeah. Um, a couple things. So I always just love, you know, after I just talked about right fans doing bad being ripping people, I do like the jokes on NBA Twitter. I think that makes watching it's the funniest thing. They're just brilliant people. Better. It's so comical, so creative. Uh, so that's always there. Like Josiah <laughs> Johnson and his gifts. Oh my gosh, they're incredible. Um, but actually, I'm very interested with Brooklyn, which is kind of like the obvious one, I think. But they are f- for multiple reasons, and less about like like Kyrie and Durant as moody artists is always funny to me. I just love that we actually have these type of players in the league. That they're so like. I just one. I I joke with Kyle and Steph. I'm like. I think Durant is actually my age. Like these are the guys, like actually my cohort, like these are the representative NBA players. And it's just hilarious. Like how they're like viewed in the media and the sports world. Cause like, I don't consider everyone my age, like exactly like this, but there's, there's, there's some like generational stuff going on. And it's just hilarious <laughs> that like these is moody folks are like, you know, it's about the art, <laughs> you know, I can't like the media. They're very like, they deconstruct things, but like they kind of do it right. But sometimes they're a little off on it, you know? So that's interesting. And they can't even talk to the media because the media doesn't understand. They can't speak at their level. So it's not even worth, it's not even worth talking to the masses, the untrained masses. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's, so, it's so funny. So I just, I just love that. And I'm not even like I support, I just find it endlessly amusing. Um, but actually with Brooklyn, I'm fascinated by like 
the coaching structure and like the way this is kind of like what Steve Kerr do with the Warriors, like Mike Brown is the defense and or it's like Brown and Adams, I think. But I'm actually very curious, like these kind of collective coaching uh, groups. And I'm sure it's not uncommon, but like with Nash, especially, it seems different. Even the way Nash talks about like team and leadership, it's just a very different type of style than I think a lot of professional coaching. Right. And I think it's going to be interesting to see over the year how this works, like what type of culture they create and, and with the two moody artists. Right. Like how, what do they, cause I actually think it could work unbelievably and actually disrupt a lot of what we think um, the way it is to how you have to be a leader, how you have to coach. I'm actually very curious. There's so many people waiting to pounce because they're like, these guys can't, they don't get along with people. They're not in it together. I'm actually, I think this, I, I'm kind of rooting for it to work just because as you can tell with all three of us, <laughs> we like to just, we like when narratives get disrupted and challenged. Yeah. Well, even even think about how people attack Kyrie. And again, Kylie, some Kyrie sometimes articulates things in a weird way that opens it up for critique. But his comment about coaching and saying there doesn't have to be a single coach that's dominant. I actually think he was trying to speak to what you're speaking to, right? We've got Dan Tony, who is was Nash's coach, who's an incredible offensive mind. We've got Jacques, Jacques Vaughn, who is incredibly successful. Durant and Kyrie believe and I think do really understand the game and they like to celebrate how well they understand it's it's actually true when you're that good an NBA player you don't need a coach in the same way as I needed in middle school so there's true but people even then again it's fair to critique some of the stuff Kyrie says but even then they weren't really willing to try to be like well what is he what is he actually saying I don't think he was throwing shots at Nash right away he wanted Nash to be the coach Durant wanted Nash to be the coach that's why he was the coach so I yeah I I'm I'm in, in with it completely i agree with you and i think again like this idea of like de-emphasizing the head coach as like you know it's sort of spreading out the power a little bit more and even just the dynamic between i don't know how many times it's happened it's happened that a assistant coach has that was the head coach for the player who is now the head coach has been hired i'm like what's happening here um has been hired to be an assistant <laughs> coach it's just like that dynamic is really interesting and like i think it's good for, good on mike d'antoni for for taking that on great stefan um well similarly um redemption stories were kind of what i was looking forward to too i was looking forward to in particular a redemption story that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So Jeremy Lin's return to the NBA. Yes. So they, they couldn't get the paperwork in time? Like, is that what, what happens? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So um, I think this past weekend, or was it maybe the week, the weekend before that, uh, the Warriors had, I mean, there was, there was a report, there were reports that they were on the verge of signing Lin to their G League team. But um, like what, the, 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 the CBA wasn't able to sign the forms quick enough or return the forms in time. And as a result, the, uh, the, the Warriors filled their last roster spot with, I forget who, but they, there's no more spots left in the team for, for them to sign Lynn. So it seems like, it seems like the, uh, the opportunity for Lynn to return to the NBA, at least for the time being has closed. But I mean, I, I imagine teams can still pick up players well into the season. So there might be another opportunity for another team to pick him up, but it's seemingly unlikely at this point. So uh, that, that's unfortunate, but also similar to, to, to um, that, what Alex was saying, stating, I am really interested in the Brooklyn Nets, in particular Kyrie Irving, just because of like how he's painted as this kind of villainous figure within the league. And um, as Kyle was saying, like a lot of what he does, I think he, he intentionally tries to 
be this kind of this disruptive, like avant-garde, like transgressive player. And sometimes it works and most times it doesn't. But I think because of that, it makes for, for at the very least an interesting narrative and very interesting basketball. And I mean, it doesn't hurt that he's a part of a really, really good team with, with um, a lot of um, interesting characters and of course signing of Steve Nash and, and so on. So um, given that Lynn probably won't be in the season this year, I will be actively, I don't know about rooting for, but watching watching the Kyrie saga drama unfold. And then beyond that, of course, like the obvious one here is I'm really excited for the Lakers to repeat this year. So I'm calling it now. Lakers will be <laughs> 2021 NBA champions. It, it, uh, the season didn't start off the way that I I, I hoped it would, but I think if anything, it's, it's it's a result of them having too much depth, which is necessarily mm, interesting. <laughs> a, a bad interesting thing. take. The <laughs> Nets Lakers would be the most fascinating finals in terms of storylines, and this two teams from these giant cities on the opposite coast with such different understandings of the game. I'd be I would I would love for that to happen. But going back to Jeremy Lin. The CBA is such a fascinating place, and I don't think there's been a lot of good reporting, uh, both in popular press or any academic articles on this topic. But it's such a mystery. I mean, it's it's one. It's probably the most common space for NBA players to go after their time in the NBA is gone. Sometimes the NBA players manage to return, but not a lot of great discussion of the experience in the actual league. And especially with Jeremy Lin, there's been this silence around. He talks a little bit about how the fans received him. Um, you know, we've the three of us have been paying a lot of attention to this because we're going to be authoring a chapter focusing more on Jeremy Lin's understanding of his own position in terms of politics and race and ethnicity. But one of the things that we wanted to do was pay more attention to what happens happened in China, and it's just it's just not there, right? And that's and it's so in, the fact that the league didn't get paperwork in time. There's so many players to go back and forth between those. Oh, like, I, that, I mean, that seemed, I'm. I don't want to be conspiratorial, but I'm suspicious that it's just like, oh, someone forgot to sign it and fax it over. <laughs> like that could have happened. That doesn't happen at a professional yeah. level. Like this was intentional in the CBA for yeah. sure. And I wouldn't be surprised if the CBA requires its players to sign NDAs or something. Uh, yeah. Um, especially foreign, especially overseas players, like foreign players. Like that, that seems like it would be an obvious thing. Cause I, to the fact that, like the fact that Jeremy Lin doesn't speak critically of the CBA is one thing, but the fact that like no NBA player ever who's played in the CBA has spoken critically of, of the CBA is another yeah. thing entirely. And so I I really wouldn't be surprised if there's like something in their contracts that um, prevents them from speaking critically of the CBA. And it's not just like, you know, a monetary, monetary incentive or pen, like, um, like penalty or something. Um, I also think about the the redemption story. I don't know if Jeremy Lin had any interest in playing in San Francisco in particular, but that he's from, you know, so close to San Francisco, like grew up a couple towns from where I grew up. And it's just like, that would have been extra sweet. I'm not sure if he would agree with that, but that would have been a cool story uh, to, to have him get to play for the Warriors. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the first team that signed him to and so that was his first team. It's where he's from, and I know he was he was practicing there too. So I, I think in his mind he was he was hoping for at least a tryout with the Warriors when he came back. And it's really unfortunate that didn't didn't pan out. Right. Well, we'll see what happens in Jeremy Lin's future. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, 
Thanks so much for making time to do this on Christmas Eve. I know, I mean, normally on Christmas Eve, I, I might have yeah, more to do. But... Year, so I'm, I'm stuck here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just at home. So it's nice to, yeah, not, to unpack yeah. some of this stuff and uh, hear what you guys have been thinking about. So thanks for 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 doing that. This it means fun. a lot. Thanks for having us back. Yeah. Go, go Nuggets. Good. <laughs> Always fun. Go Nuggets, go Suns, <laughs> go Nets, go... Uh, yeah, we'll see. Everybody. And Lakers, no, yeah. of course. <laughs> That's on the detention yeah. of that topic. No, and Stefan, everyone agrees. Like, a lot of people agree with you. So you're you're uh, you're not alone in thinking that they uh, pre-ordaining the, uh, the Lakers as the 2021 champions. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, thanks, okay, thanks well. Again. Yeah, Merry Christmas to everybody. And stay safe. Take care. We'll Good talk soon, I'm sure. Thanks. Happy New Year as well. <laughs> yeah, happy New Year. Bye, Bye guys. I'm on it. Bye. Bye.